Good morning. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges, chapter 14. Last week, Samson was born. This week, he's a young man. It's a fast week. Judges, chapter 14, we'll be looking at uh, really 14 and 15 today as we continue to walk through this great Old Testament book of history. So much to learn, so much to learn. Judges chapter 14 and 15, let's pray and then we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we don't take it lightly. Lord, this is the very word of God that you gave us, revealing yourself to us, instructing us, helping us to bring you glory. So Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we consider its truth today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when you consider the planning and the process of having children, it does come with much anticipation. There's the birth announcement, the showers, the preparation, and then D-Day. Nine months of anticipation has built up to that wonderful moment when that little bundle of joy, first placed in the parents' arms, baby all cleaned up and warm and wrapped up in that ugly hospital blanket, And as you hold that little bundle of preciousness, it truly is a sweet moment. However, it doesn't take long for that delighted look of amazement and joy to turn into shock and alarm when you realize that precious bundle of joy has lungs. The thing about a baby is that they don't They don't have to tell you verbally when they're hungry. You will know. The thing about a baby is they don't have to use words to let their demands be known. You will soon find out. And then they grow up and those cries become words. And those words become demands. And those demands become Well, you know the rest. When you consider the story of Samson, really from his parents' perspective, you could kind of see a similar track. All of this, I mean, the birth announcement was given by an angel. His mom, unnamed, we don't know her name, is told by an angel of the Lord that she's going to have a son. She's been barren all of these years, and now she's going to have a baby, and... There's excitement, there's anticipation, there's preparation, there's anticipation and all these things as they prepare for the birth of their baby. And Samson, just as God promised, arrives there at the end of chapter 13, verse 24, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, the Lord blessed him. The spirit of the Lord began to stir him. You know, 
Last week we looked at how really the birth announcement of Samson and his life is similar to the life of Jesus, not in righteousness, far from it, but in just how it came about. You know, a previous announcement about an angel, really don't have a lot of details, any details really, about Samson's early childhood. It kind of goes from birth to young man, very similar in the life of Jesus. Samson arrives just as promised. We're not given all the details about his childhood, but the opening verses of chapter 14 make it clear that his parents hadn't read James Dobson's book on the strong-willed child. Imagine their distress when this promised child from the Lord demands a wife from the enemy of Israel. There's a lot that could be said about this narrative of Samson. Samson certainly is a compelling story, not because of the righteousness that Samson brought to Israel. It's a compelling story because of how God raised this, this man up whose life could be an HBO drama and yet was used of the Lord to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Samson, in many ways, was a stubborn judge, a stubborn savior of sorts, making demands and doing things his way, but yet God used him to bring deliverance. I want us to walk through this narrative, and I want us to see several important truths that we see here that that really through this story that that helps us see God's redemptive plan continuing. This is Old Testament, right? This is Old Testament and so it's setting the foundation, it's foreshadowing, it's pointing us forward to to what would finally finally come in, in fulfillment of all of these promises ultimately realized in Jesus Christ. We've said before, all of these judges in, in the book of Judges, in their, even in their best of moments, are still inadequate saviors. And so what I want us to see is some truths about the Lord throughout this story and throughout this narrative as we continue to think about God's plan to save his people. Several truths that I want us to look at this morning. First truth is this. One thing that you see in the narrative of Samson, and we can see it in other places in the Bible, is this, God often works in mysterious ways. Be a title of a great hymn, by the way. Yeah, it's a great hymn written years ago. God moves in a mysterious way. God works often in a mysterious way. Let's look at the first seven verses of chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. (laughs) But his father and mother said to them, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. 
Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they, be, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Well, as we come to this chapter, it quickly becomes apparent that maybe Samson wasn't disciplined enough as a kid. He's quite stern in his demand. An important note about marriage, marriage is today versus marriage is then, it, it not quite developed the same way. In that culture, you, you couldn't just go marry whoever you wanted to until the parents signed off. This is sort of how it's supposed to work today, but, but much different. You had not only had their blessing, but their permission. And so Samson doing what he's supposed to do as a good Israelite, he goes, he sees this woman that he wants to marry, a Philistine. She's the one and goes back and makes the demand of his parents, found me a wife, go get her. One problem, she's Philistine. Israel was living under the oppression of the Philistines, but it's, it's important to note that apparently this oppression at this particular point in time was one that allowed for the Israelites to live somewhat of a normal life, even though every aspect of their culture was dominated by the Philistines. So Samson's parents are dumbfounded and plead with him to reconsider, but to no avail. Can you imagine these parents? I mean, what are you thinking? I mean, is there not anyone in Israel that you can marry? Why this Philistine? Why someone that's from our enemies? But what the parents did not have that we have is verse four. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. And this is a key verse in this entire narrative. So we don't want to lose track of it. If you, one of those makes notes in your Bible, you might want to highlight, underline, star, whatever it is you do to note something. Verse four, critical, critical verse. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. So Samson pursuing this Philistine woman against any kind of common Israelite sense at this point in time, wants this lady to be his wife and his parents are dumbfounded. They're, they're, they don't know what to do and they don't know what to think and what they don't realize is this desire Samson had was actually sovereignly given to him by the Lord because the Lord was looking for an opportunity against the Philistines because the Philistines at this time ruled the people. Now, having said that, I think it's important to give a point of clarification. It is important to note that Samson's actions are not being condoned here. So don't hear me say, because the Lord was seeking to defeat the Philistines, we can be sinners like Samson and do what we want to, and God's still going to bring about his purposes. That's not what the point of this passage is. Samson's actions are not being condoned, and he is certainly bent on doing his own thing regardless of what everyone else thinks or said. He is not, listen, Samson is not a model of righteousness. Tim Keller 
sums it up well. He is perhaps the most flawed man in Judges, a violent, impulsive, sexually addicted, emotionally immature, and selfish man. Probably not the picture most of you had about Samson. And so while in no way are we to condone Samson's impulsive, self-centered behavior, we do need to see that even through his ungodly, unrighteous behavior, God is sovereignly orchestrating events that will ultimately lead to the defeat of the Philistines. So what you and I need to see here is that neither Samson's foolishness or his stubbornness could prevent God from accomplishing his purposes. In fact, it would be through the foolishness and stubbornness of Samson that God would sovereignly accomplish his purposes. Dale Ralph Davis, another commentator, said, Yahweh can and will use the sinfulness or stupidity of his servants as the camouflage for bringing his secret will to pass. God is at work even, even when his people are being foolish. As we need to remember something, I think just a little lesson in, in what we call hermeneutics, understanding the Bible and how to read the Bible. We read many things in the scripture that are, are descriptive, not prescriptive. This is one of those descriptive moments where it's describing the events as they were, it's not prescribing how we ought to live. It's not, here, Samson, be like him. It's describing his behavior, it's describing his foolishness, his immaturity, his selfishness, and how God, even through that, is able to bring about his sovereign purposes. And the simple point is this, your sin and your foolishness, my sin and my foolish behavior cannot stop God. And he will often use your foolish decisions and behavior as a means to accomplish his righteous and good purposes. There are examples that, that, that are many in the Bible. You go to Genesis 37 through 50, the story of Joseph, his brothers sinfully selling him into slavery and yet God using that to bring good about. The, the life and death, especially the death of Jesus. Acts chapter two, verses 22 through 24, we see this clearly, men of Israel, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Friends, and indeed is a mystery to us of how God does these things but it should also be of great comfort to us. When you read a story like Samson or you really read the narrative of Jesus' own crucifixion where all of this evil happened to him and yet God's plans were actually being accomplished for the redemption of mankind, only God can do these things. It's a mystery to us, but it should also be of great comfort to us the fact that nothing cannot Nothing can stop God's promises and plans from taking place. Nothing. ISIS cannot stop God. Some evil communist dictator in North Korea cannot stop God. 
No agnostic or atheist elite in the university cannot, can stop God's purposes and plans from unfolding. The secularization of our society cannot stop God's plans and purposes from unfolding. The wrong president cannot stop God's plans and purposes from unfolding. Praise God. God is at work even through, and mysterious as it is, I don't understand it. All I'm simply doing is pointing to the fact that God works in mysterious ways. I often can't explain how he works. That's why he's God. We worship him and we are compelled to see him in power and glory. And here what you see in the midst of this narrative, I don't want you to lose sight of this fact that God is at work even through a foolish and sinful judge to bring deliverance to his people. God works in mysterious ways. Second truth, God will expose the folly of our sin. God will expose the folly of our sin. Let's pick up in verse eight. After some days, he returned to take her. He turned aside to see the carcass of the lion and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. Scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. He came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. Shopping spree, right? But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. So on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. This is serious. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother and shall I tell you? Great wedding night, right? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. The men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than than a lion. And he said to them, if you have not plowed with my heifer, you would not found out my riddle. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town, took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. After some days, chapter 15, after some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. 
And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etom. Quite a story. What I want us to see here are several, several snapshots of the foolishness of sin being exposed. In some ways, the Israelites would have found this story humorous because of the narrative and because of all the details that really happened and they would have read this historically and found it humorous that God's judgment is coming after their deliverance, God's judgment is coming in this way upon the Philistines, but, but when it comes to the actual sin and evil that plagues Israel here, there's not much to laugh at. So I want us to see several, several lessons about sin that we need to take away so that we do not fall prey to it in the same way that Samson did. Number one, we need to not be reckless with God's call in our lives. Samson was to be a Nazarite. We see that back in chapter 13 and how the Lord called his mom and said he's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be set apart for a special purpose of God. So because he was a Nazarite, there were all these things he couldn't do. He couldn't drink of the fruit of the vine. He couldn't, he had to, he couldn't cut his hair. He couldn't come into contact with, with dead bodies, living or animals or humans. And so all of these regulations were in place as a, as a symbol of his set-apartness, if you will. And so in verses five through nine, Samson's traveling with his parents down to Timnah to meet the Philistine girl and to get married. And so along the way, they stopped at the vineyards of Timnah. Now, at some point, Samson is alone. Maybe his parents were in the wine tasting room. I don't know. And while he was alone, a lion comes rushing upon him. Samson takes him down. No weapons, just with his hands. Samson's not one of those guys you want to mess with, right? And dude took a lion down with his bare hands. That's what he did. And it tells us in that passage that Samson did not tell his parents. I mean, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. I mean, if I'm taking a line down with my own bare hands, I'm telling everybody. <laughs> call me proud or whatever you wanna call me. I'm, I'm Facebooking it to the world, right? Twitter, everyone will know. Adam defeats lion with bare hands. But he keeps this a secret. Because he knew that Coming in contact with this dead creature was a violation of his Nazarite vow. Later on, he comes back. 
We see that in the text. He comes back here and the lion carcass is still there and this time there's honey there. It's kind of a weird story. It's gonna tie in later when he deals with the riddle. But he takes honey out of that, coming in contact with the dead creature again and gives some to his parents, again not telling them. What is the point here? Well, on both occasions, Samson seems to indicate a carelessness about his own vow to the Lord. Doesn't seem to bother him that he's coming into contact with a dead animal and doesn't seem to bother him at all. Friends, let this be a reminder to each of us that when we disregard the call of God upon our lives, we put ourselves in a very dangerous place. It wasn't just that he touched a dead animal. There are many flaws and many things of, of sin in Samson's life that indicate he did not have a respect for the call of God upon his life. Now, he was still used of God, but it was despite him, not because of him. Because when God saves us, he gives us gifts to be used for his purposes. He, he calls us to serve. Friends, I, pastors and missionaries are not the only people called to the ministry. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, which means you have gifts, which means you have a calling, which means God expects you to serve, to be used of him. Friend, we should not take that lightly or ignore it. Yes, God will still accomplish his purposes with or without you and sometimes despite you. That doesn't give us an excuse to just simply ignore God's call and, and upon our lives and the way he's fashioned us and gifted us and equipped us. We should not take it lightly. We should not ignore it. At the beginning, God displays his provision for Samson. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That's how he took out the lion, by the way. By the time it was over, Samson had broken his own vow and wasn't telling his parents. And so disregarding God's call completely upon his life. We dare not do that. Don't play with God's call in your life. Don't, don't dabble just with, with God's giftings to you. Second truth that we see. We need to deal with obvious weaknesses. We need to deal with obvious weaknesses. Now, in verses 10 and following of chapter 14, where the riddle takes place in the context of their marriage ceremony, uh, he's preparing to get married. And of course, that can't come without some excitement, right? I mean, we've got to have some, we've got to have some excitement here in the midst of this celebration. And so at, the, at, at a certain point, when 30 companions were provided for this, this celebration, Samson makes a bet with them that they can't solve his riddle. See that in verses 12 through 14. So bet on, right? Sure we can. Well, three days later, when it was clear that they were not going to solve the riddle, the guests began to put a little pressure on Samson's wife in verse 15. Quite the pressure. Entice your husband to tell us or we'll burn you and your father. Well, the rest of the passage, she goes and pleads with Samson to tell her. At first he refuses, but eventually he gives over. 
and tells her. What we see here is a little snapshot here in chapter 14, and it'll be much more apparent by the time we get to chapter 16, is that Samson is easily manipulated by his desire for women. It's gonna impact him in a great way. It's gonna be the cause of his death, really, in later on, but he, he has a weakness. And his desire for women, even now his own wife, is, is, is what's call, causing him to kind of let his guard down, and in this case, giving up the, the answer to the riddle. And so she gives the answer to the guest, and they come and tell Samson their answer, and his reaction is not, is not slight. In anger, he goes and storms off, but we see there he goes and kills 30 Philistines and takes their clothes and brings back as, in, as the answer to the bet. Now, the text does tell us in verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Keep in mind verse four. Verse four, the Lord's sovereign purpose was to defeat the Philistines and now Samson, even through his foolishness and even through his wickedness and even through his, his actions that weren't something to, to, be a, to model for others, God still accomplishes purposes. Doesn't justify the human response, but yet clearly seeing God is at work. He returns, the text tells us, in hot anger. He goes back to his father's house. Problem, Samson's wife was given to his best man while he was gone. We see that in chapter 15, one through eight. Samson's response to that was not slight, and so he gets these 300 foxes and sets fire to some torches and sends these foxes out into the, to the grain, destroying the crops. What we see here is Samson's anger and impulsive nature would ultimately be his demise. Simple lesson for us that we must be alert. We must be alert to the weaknesses we have or they too will be our demise. One scholar put it this way, awareness of weakness is the beginning of safety. So many people, so many people unaware of their own weaknesses or even when their weaknesses are pointed out, unwilling to deal with them appropriately. Just this past week, a story of a prominent pastor, the Midwest, fired, fired. Faithful church, gospel-believing church because he would not deal with his own weaknesses. Just don't think that we're beyond it. Don't think that we're beyond certain weaknesses that are going to wreak havoc in our own souls and in the souls of many others. We need to deal with obvious weaknesses. Samson was not dealing with the own impulsive nature, his own anger problems, his his womanizing issues, I mean, he has a host of them and he wasn't, he wasn't dealing with any of them. Friend, where do you find yourself weak? Again, don't try to do this on your own. Invite other people into your life to help them help you. Ask someone, ask someone that you respect, ask someone that's a godly friend, ask someone that you trust. Friend, help me see weaknesses in my own life. Where, where do I struggle? Where do I make a fool of myself? Where, where am I not listening to, to counsel? 
be one of the best questions you ask someone on a regular basis. What sinful impulses are true of you and what are you actively doing to deal with those? Plan of attack do you have against those sinful impulses? Those weak areas of your own heart and life, what are you doing to deal with that, with those? Number three, God exposes the foolishness of our sin. We need to confront spiritual lethargy. Look at verse nine. Then the Philistines, so Samson's in a cave, right? He's, he's just mad, mad at the world. And the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Leah. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Verse 11, then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two ropes, two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Leah, the Philistines came shouting to meet him and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said with the jawbone of a donkey, heap upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down 1,000 men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand and that place was called Ramoth Leah. And he was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant and shall I now die of thirst, fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. And God split open the hollow place that is in Lehi and water came out of it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and revived. Therefore, the name of it was called in Hakor, that is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the day of the Philistines 20 years. Think about this, back in verse nine, out of his anger, Samson is now in this vicious back and forth game with the Philistines. They harm him, he hurts them, back and forth, back and forth, and now he's, he's kinda just at a boiling point in a cave, hiding, and apparently Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, has had enough of this nonsense. And some men of Judah went and found Samson to confront him over his actions. Basically, they're like, Samson, what are you doing? What are you doing? Do you not realize the Philistines are ruling us? Think about that. God's people confronting God's judge who's supposed to be delivering his people and they're whining and complaining that Samson's doing what he was called to do. They seem happy and content with their oppression, don't they? It tells us a lot about the state of Israel in this time. Actually upset that Samson is stirring things up because they apparently were comfortable under the regime of the Philistines. It's amazing. Think about that. They don't think twice 
about forsaking God to worship idols. But they don't want to consider for a moment breaking things off with their relationship to the Philistines. It's a sad day, isn't it, in Israel? Quickly revert to idolatry, but when it comes to being delivered out of idolatry, they're like, wait a minute, we, things are well. It's a sad state to be in. You know it's a dark day when God's people are content in allowing the enemy of God to hold sway over them. That teaches us a very, very important lesson. Negotiating with evil is not a virtue. Negotiating with evil is not a virtue. James tells us very clearly in chapter four, verse four, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You, you can't be in the good with God's enemies and be in the good with God. It, it doesn't work that way. As we are called to battle against sin, not make friends with it. We are called to war against the enemy and to, to make battle against the enemy, to fight against the enemy, to kill, to, to destroy sin. And yet what we have here is those who have grown comfortable with it. So much so they're willing to protect themselves from any kind of deliverance. And I just ask you, where have you grown comfortable with the world? And that's a question for all of us because all of us at some point are cozy with the world. Where, where are you most cozy with the world? Where are you most willing to negotiate with evil? Where are you willing to blur the lines of righteousness for the sake of ease and comfort? And we have to confront that kind of apathy, that kind of lethargic approach to, to God and righteousness and, and, and more specifically, that kind of approach to sin and evil. Number four, we should commit to being in community. Something that isn't said but is clearly seen throughout this narrative is this, Samson is a loner. He doesn't ask for help, he doesn't seek for advice, and he doesn't work with others, or at least very well. As Tim Keller said again, he's, one, he's a one-man wrecking crew. That's a dangerous recipe for, for failure and disaster. When you seek to do life apart from godly community, don't expect to be effective or fruitful. It's a clear reminder, largely from silence, but clear from Samson's life that God has made us for community. We were created to enjoy and benefit from other godly relationships, one that he wasn't pursuing. If you think you can do just fine without godly people in your life, just look at Samson. Read ahead and see how it goes for him. And we wanna encourage you to be a godly friend to others and surround yourself with godly friends. And we want to encourage you, encourage you to, to be part of a godly community. It's the primary place that God has arranged for that to happen is the local church. 
You're gonna have great friends outside of the local church. You're gonna have great community outside the local church, but right here, and what God is doing is one of the primary ways that he arranges for community to be enjoyed and for godly relationships to flourish. Without community, we end up like Samson. No one to hold us accountable, no one to keep the truth before us, no one to remind us. We become a one-man wrecking crew of our own life and our family and everyone else that we know. Third truth, final truth is this. God will defeat his enemies. God, he, he works in mysterious ways. He will expose the foolishness of sin as he does in Samson and especially in Israel. But one of the things that comes out of this passage that should give us great hope and great confidence is that God will defeat his enemies. You see that in verses 14 through 20. Not only has God made it evident that he can use even our most sinful actions to accomplish his purposes, he will also use the un most unlikely of means to do so. Look, he takes Samson, an impulsive womanizer, and destroys 1,000 Philistines with nothing more than a jawbone of a donkey. Come on, who can make this up? If you're gonna tell me you're gonna go take on a thousand people, the last thing I'm taking with me is a jawbone. This is the way with God. Using unlikely people, unlikely means to accomplish his purposes for his glory. In verse 16, after this happens, Samson responds when this, we don't see it in our English translations, with the jawbone of a donkey, heap upon heaps. The word heap in Hebrew is the same word for donkey. So he's using a play on words here. With the jawbone of a donkey, heap upon heaps. With the jawbone of donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. It's a simply reminder that we have a God who will bring justice to all those who stand opposed to him. And he does. He does exactly what he said he was doing in verse four of chapter 14. The Philistines were God's enemies, and God was resolved to hold them accountable, and he does. Friend, you may be here today, and you may not think of yourself as an enemy of God, but listen, if you do not have a saving relationship through Jesus Christ, you are an enemy with, of God. All of us are that way, apart from Christ. All of us before Jesus were enemies of God. That's how the Bible describes it. We stand opposed to him. We stand in rebellion against him. We stand in a way that's completely in opposition to him and righteousness and truth. And that, friend, is, is where you stand if you're not in Christ. And what we're reminded time and time again through judges throughout the entirety of scripture is that God will bring justice. God will hold his enemies accountable and he will defeat them. The good news for you, friend, is that if you're an enemy of God, he has provided the means for you to go from enemy to friend. And he's done that through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfect in every way, but willingly came, humbled himself, lived life as a man, never sinned, and yet took upon himself our sin at the cross, 
satisfying God's justice and, and, and wrath against sin once and for all and offering forgiveness for those who would trust in him. And so if you're here today and you think, well, I've never put my faith in Jesus and therefore I must be an enemy, where's my hope? Well, your hope is by looking to Christ. Trust in him, embrace him by faith. And you will not have to stand, maybe you came as an enemy of God today, you can leave as a friend, as an adopted child, if you would simply just turn from sin and look to Jesus and believe in him. You know, you might come away from this passage thinking, well, even though Samson wasn't morally right in all the things that he did, God still used this stubborn, stubborn savior to preserve Israel. And that's true, partially. The reality is, the stubborn savior in this passage is not Samson. The stubborn savior is God. Because he has a holy stubbornness to preserve his people forever and ever. Friend, I don't know about you, but I am thankful that we have a God who is stubbornly committed to saving a people for himself and keeping us to the end. Because I know that my own stubborn heart, my own stubborn heart is not enough to keep myself firm to the end. It is not. My own stubbornness only turns me against God. But I am so thankful that God's holy stubbornness has pursued me and keeps me firm to the end. And friend, he does that for you. What a reminder that we have a God who loves us that much. There is no better place to be, no better place to be than the recipients of God's stubborn grace because he loves us that much. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you love us in spite of our many sins but not just the sins that we commit, Lord. You love us in spite of who we are as sinners. Father, what a reminder today that we have seen, even through this flawed judge, God, that you, you can use the most unlikely of means to accomplish your sovereign purposes. Lord, I'm grateful that our hope, our hope, ultimately does not rest in someone like Samson because Lord, we would, we would not have hope. But Lord, I'm grateful that we have a greater savior, a perfect savior, a mighty savior, much stronger than Samson, perfect in every way, who gave himself for sinners so that we could be forgiven and have hope for eternity. Lord, we thank you that in your relentless pursuit of us, that nothing can stop you, nothing. And so Lord, we just wanna thank you and praise you for your goodness in that way. Lord, I do pray that you would search our hearts today and that you would cause us to reflect upon our own lives and that you would help us to see our own flaws, our own foolish ways, our own weaknesses, our own failures. 
And Father, that we would not try to clean ourselves up, but Lord, as we are exposed to our own foolishness and folly, God, that we would be quick to run to Christ and find complete forgiveness, complete cleansing, complete righteousness. God, would you move in our hearts today in a way that pleases you. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus' name, amen.